Hello, my dears. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that today's episode talks about sensitive topics like suicide and the death of an infant. It may not be what you need for today. So here's a little permission to be gentle with yourself. My name is Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. We need people. No, really. When life comes undone, one of the best and sometimes only medicine we have is one another. Our people can help to stave off the creeping loneliness that comes when we face the unthinkable. They remind us that we are loved, 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 and not forgotten, even when all evidence seems to point otherwise. They help carry parts of ourselves and our chores when even getting out of bed seems to be the most we can manage in a day. Sometimes love comes in the form of fresh sheets or a home-cooked meal left on your doorstep or a marathon of the show community, even though we know we've both seen each episode a dozen times. When we are sick, when we are deep in grief, when we are wondering which way is up, our people can come alongside and shoulder the burden. They may not be able to fix the situation. It might be absolutely unsolvable. But there is something about that kind of love, the kind that opts in when it would be easier and less messy to opt out. That, I don't know, heals something in us, in me. Today's episode is for the ones who opt in, who let their hearts break alongside ours. Bless you. The Reverend Liz Titchener is an Episcopal priest in California. Liz is no stranger to grief. In a single year, Liz lost both her mom and her baby. She writes beautifully about that grief and hope in her memoir, The Night Lake. A young priest maps the topography of grief. Liz, hello. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Thank you. We are maybe the only two people just who want to talk about being on team theological education um, <laughs> more than any, more than anyone we know, surely. So it makes me want to ask you, what first drew you toward becoming a priest? Because I think the only obvious answer is, um, is fashion. Well, yeah. There's nothing like dressing up in <laughs> vestments made for a man a foot taller than me 40 years ago to look really good. That's what I get to do on yeah. Sundays. <laughs> Is that a woman or a human triangle? Yeah, we hard don't to know. say. Hard to say. It's, it's yeah. Um, there leaves a, a, there's a little bit to be desired there. But the whole like minimalist thing, you know, in California, I get away with uh, it being this look. I, I went into my favorite pizzeria a couple years ago in my collar. And <laughs> the person at the checkout counter said, I really like your priest chic look. I was like, thanks. I'm a priest. <laughs> oh, wow. Monastics uh, were the early minimalists. Yeah, we went for burlap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't that, actually. Um, honestly, in some ways, I feel like I, am, I have like the best worst luck. I, I heard that phrase from um, an author whose name I now can't think of um, in describing her own, you know, constellation of tragedies growing up and whatnot. And I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> yes, 
So I I found my way into the Episcopal Church in uh, my family went for a little while when I was in, in middle school. And then my family unraveled more and more as I headed deeper into adolescence, um, divorce and alcoholism and so forth. And I went back to church. We'd stopped going. And when I got my driver's license, I went on my own and I looked a little different than I do now. Um, there was, you know, lots of different shades of green and purple hair and shaved. <laughs> and the church said, fantastic. Welcome. Where do you want to plug in? You want to come to this? Adult? You don't, you don't want to go to the youth thing? That's fine. You want to come to this adult class? Would you like to lead in this way? How about in this way? And just totally showed up and welcomed me in and were there as stable, beautiful, loving, righteous community. I mean, so at that point, I thought, oh, my goodness, I need this more than anything. And what I didn't know was that I would need it, need it even more and even more and even more as more of my life <laughs> happened and came undone. Um, and I had this sense then that that grew over time. But I remember thinking, I want to host this for somebody else. I, I want to make this possible for that next ragged teenager that needs a family because her family's not quite cutting it or, or whatever it is. That's so beautiful. We don't always get it right. <laughs> That's why I feel like I have sort of the best worst <laughs> luck. But, but in this case, they really, they did. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe you drove yourself there. You're like the first teenager in history to drive herself to church. Honestly, I mean, it's like super nerdy. I was so like, that was the thing when I got my driver's license. I, I can drive myself to church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. You mentioned um, you had a really tumultuous childhood and your mom sounds like she was a very complicated person full of laughter and love, but also brimming with a lot of pain. What was she like? Ah, uh, it was incredible. Um, I, th I think that's some of what makes it all so heartbreaking. She was, she was brilliant. She just had so much love and passion and art and, um, and also a lot of pain. I think she was really lonely yeah. in some uh, deep ways and filled that with drinking early, early on. And yeah. it, was sort of manageable for quite a while until it really wasn't. And I think that's a story that is actually super common, that I, I see it coming out in so many places. And it doesn't always end with this acute tragedy. She was an alcoholic who ultimately killed herself. And it was this precise tragedy, right? And sometimes it, it, is, it is the same heartbreak, but it's spread out over decades and never quite comes to that. But I think there, yeah. gosh, there are so many of us who that's part of the shape of our life, our family, our love. Yes. It sounds like it was very sudden and very surreal. Yeah. It, it, well, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I never expected that she would kill herself on purpose. <laughs> um, I had braced for it for a, a gnarly death related to her drinking since, I mean, since I was, gosh, seventh grade, eighth grade and there. Um, but I didn't think it would be on purpose. That adds a particular dimension, I think, to the grief. Yeah. 
that it might happen, that it could happen, or maybe would, but not like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard suicide once uh, recently described like a state of decay instead mm. of as a choice. I thought that was kind of a... Oh, wow. Sort of things things continue falling apart until they it just can't hold. Mm. Yeah. It sounded... Um, like some stories that I know where there's a deterioration and then there's just the, but there's, but there's still such a surprise at um, losing somebody and especially losing somebody who, who in another circumstance would not have chosen for it to be that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're such a a little baby priest. Uh, You know, you (laughs) were, you were just, you know, you were just ordained. You're like handed this job by God and a community. And then you're fresh to all of this grief that was very layered. Yeah. Suicide is not something that's very often discussed at dinner tables or in the pulpit, I imagine. Um, so in my tradition, we're ordained as deacons first, and then usually about six months later as priests. And she died right in between those two ordinations, uh, three months before I was made a priest. And my son died about a year later. On the one hand, yeah, like the, these aren't things we preach about. These aren't things we talk yeah. about. Um, and at the same time, it felt like, how, how could I possibly be authentic and faithful and myself and pretend that this isn't what is happening right now in my life. Yes. I definitely had not planned on this happening. I was like, it was, that was not part of the map. Any of this was not part of the map for my yeah. life. It's like, cause nobody does. Nobody thinks they're going to be, I mean, who sits down and it's like, I'd really like to have kids and here are the statistics I mean, I don't know, maybe some people do, but I think for the most part, that's not how we go about it. That's not how we go about, you know, here's this friend who I love so dearly. Am I willing to be their friend knowing that they might in two years have this horrible accident and I'll be heartbroken? No, we just love and throw ourselves in. And then sometimes it's really awful. And part of what I imagine feels impossible about your story is that every part of it made sense. Like that you're up with this baby who is a little fussy, but you already took him to the doctor and they already said he was fine. And then all of a sudden he wasn't breathing. And and it was such a natural series of choices that I imagine that made the what followed seem absolutely impossible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what makes my story terrifying for people. Really, honestly, I will probably question my choices until the day I die. Like if I'm just being really honest, you know, I I can't, I can't not, what if, um, what if I'd pushed harder? What if I'd gone somewhere else? But the, the really terrible truth is that, yeah, it all made sense. I sought care and the doctor said he was fine. We trusted that he was fine. And, and that I think is what's terrifying is that sometimes you can get an answer and it's wrong, or you can buckle your seatbelt and it doesn't matter. Or, you know, you take all your vitamins and still we're not in control of that. There's a lot that we can, you know, there's, we can control how much we choose to love and show up and 
and all that, but ultimately we're not, we're not in control. And that's absolutely petrifying to really sit with that. Yes. Especially when we're tasked as parents with keeping our kids healthy and safe and alive. Uh, And I, I really think this is offered as, you know, encouragement to not worry about how filthy your house is or that your kid is only eating cheeses or whatever, that people will say, your only job is to keep them alive. And what if you can't? What if sometimes you can't? That's right. That's right. The loving baby frets, the holding him, the naturalness of that love. You're like, you're, you're a nursing mom. You're one who's like snuggling, snuggling him. And then to to somehow have to walk away. The way that you tell the news to each person, the Mm -hmm. way you described it, uh, like like each person who picks up the phone and they don't yet know. And it sounded to me like you felt like you were um, almost like dropping a heavy weight on glass and watching it sort of crack under their feet. Mm -hmm. There's there's a way in which really major you know tragedies or deaths or whatever you're you're both needing care and asking for support but also so often in the position of having to support people as you tell them about the death or the diagnosis or the divorce or whatever when they're hearing it for the first time and of course they're upset when they hear it for the first time and I think I felt that particularly then and it continues to be a really fascinating dimension of who who's supporting who and where where do they get what they need where do i get what i need to carry on um sort of radar of empathy (laughs) (laughs) can you handle this do you want to know more the moment you describe in the hospital of being (laughs) that moment where you're supposed to receive care you're supposed to get the chaplain who comes and sits with you and I mean, this is something you and I, I just share uh, horrifyingly, entirely in common. Did you have awful chaplain experiences? We cannot handle trite, terrible things, especially from, especially from Christians. Yeah, It's no. just, uh-uh. it's a rarefied kind of... It's so bad. I mean, the, I, I think you described it as like, well, she rounded the corner on everything happens for a reason, and <laughs> then she... Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of why it's so um, unpalatable for me is is because I know it actually does damage. It actually makes things worse. For for things to be able to make something worse in a situation like yours or like mine, you know, that's saying something. described Fritz's funeral as this communal act like you needed Mm. to be carried and you needed to bury him together how did that that beautiful way that you describe church and community as being this like group project how did that vision kind of hold some of the weight over that terrible period Mm. I think 
what made it work in part was the folks leading us through all that to two dear priests, close friends, Phil and Jeff, they, they loved Fritz, you know, so dearly. I, you know, I, I, in some ways I, um, felt, I don't know, not badly, but I, I felt for them asking them to lead this for us, knowing that, oh, that's a really, really hard one. Um, but they didn't, they didn't mask how hard it was. You know, I think there's a way in which, um, (laughs) I mean, in some ways church is theater, right? Um, and in (laughs) some ways I, I think that, uh, it can be antiseptic. It can have that, that plexiglass between who's leading or what's being prayed, preached, enacted, whatever, and the lived reality of people's hearts and souls that are, you know, broken and sort of bleeding all over the place in the pews. Exactly. That was exactly what I was picturing. <laughs> yes. It's just a mess. And so like, I'm sitting there in the front of this little church, you know, snot running down my face and shaking and, you know, uh, literally being held up by um, my best friend on one side, but they broke that fourth wall in being wholehearted, brokenhearted, tenderhearted, all of it with us. And they were really explicit. This is what we're doing together. This is not us watching Liz and Jesse burying their son. This is all of us burying our beloved child together. Oof. <laughs> Oh, that's, so, oh, that's God, so real. Mm-hmm. And it, and I think the part of the gift of it that I, well, I, I don't think I, it even occurred to me then was that day was really important, but they were also teaching our whole community how, like, this is how we're going to be together. This is how we're going to be for Liz and Jesse and Alice and now Sam this is how we're going to be for one another when the shit keeps hitting the fan for all of us. Um, yeah. And they were, they were so, you know, explicit and direct. <laughs> we're going to show up. We're going to love them. <laughs> we're going to keep holding them. We're going to keep remembering. And I mean, shoot, these people are obedient, you know, <laughs> like I think, I think they really took it to, I mean, they really took it to heart. I just, um, <laughs> just last week, a dear friend visited who was at that funeral. Um, and she, we hadn't seen her in gosh, in years. And, um, she brought these, these two stuffed sloths for Sam and for Alice. They're super sweet. You can microwave them and they're really soft and they smell like that. They're amazing. Um, <laughs> But she also, um, she wrote a letter to my kids uh, and gave it to them as she was leaving town after several really sweet days together. And she told them in this letter how, you know, I brought one for each of you, but there's not, there's not just two of you. There's three of you. There's your brother is still, he's still connected. He's still with us where we still love him 
And so I'm going to make and send a third little baby sloth. So there's three of them. And um, the gift of having someone else remember and teach my living kids about their brother and hold that so that it's not just like she, she helped bury him, but now she's also helping to remember him and helping to teach my kids what it might mean, what it might look like to have a dead brother that is still part of our family. Um, yes. It's just a huge gift. Makes me think of the moment where um, in those, you know, godless traditions that, that don't just baptize adults like mine. <laughs> Mennonites are so, so, so insane. I thought they're like, everyone must be an adult or it doesn't count. But I'm... Um, <laughs> And picturing that beautiful moment, I go to a Methodist church, right? And uh, they, um, and after they, you know, baptize the baby, that they like carry it around to meet everybody. They like, go up and down the the aisles, and like the moment where they say, like, "You're part of this family, and there's they're they're here to take care of you," and and to just think of that as like the bookend of like this is your family, like like this is your family living and dead. This is your family loved and held but also like remembered as a group project because no one can no one can hold that kind of memory on their own mm-hmm. yeah There's such a flatness to hmm. to grief in the face of bureaucracy and you like you, <laughs> you you make this wonderful terrible gorgeous point about that with these you know these the paperwork that that people receive after death that mm. that that list their their weight and occupation <laughs> and and you know occupation and, uh, newborn no, you're like what do you know baby. yeah it's a baby <laughs> and like oh. from the mm-hmm. from the you i just i felt like you were just saying like there's no people in general there's no there's no life in general i mean you want to like correct every single paperwork and also scour it for details that like no, this is my mom. This mm. is her purple nail polish. Yeah. Like, these are these are their beautiful, much loved selves. I thought that was such a gorgeous protest. Mm. It's like every tragedy goes through the like obscuratron, you know, and then it gets rendered into numbers and none of it is none of yeah. it is the people that we loved in the end. You know, I trust that people who work in funeral homes are doing the best that they can with the information that they have they're trying to make it i don't know seem more doable (laughs) but um but so like i i sometimes have to argue with them that no we're we're actually gonna bury these ashes like we're gonna put them in the ground and we're gonna put the dirt in on top we're not gonna walk the (laughs) They're like, want us the plan. The default often is that you go and like say some lovely things and maybe throw some rose petals, but then they come and put the urn in the ground and they put the dirt in. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That we're we're doing that. So Liz, when we do it, like, because that is like a those you're like when you take the extra steps when people like took handfuls of dirt ah, to help you. Yes bear your baby like like what does it what does it do when we give ourselves that mm. permission to not have it like behind a the sort of we don't put death behind the sort of privacy curtain 
I mean, there's so much about that afternoon that was simultaneously horrible, but also so beautiful and true that that might be the most awful thing I ever have to do. I don't know. I'm like so past saying like, that was it. Like, I never say never, <laughs> ever again. Like, oh, been there. Um, really bad idea. But so far in my life, that that's the most awful thing. And yet, at the same time, all these people who I love so much came and chose to let their hearts break more by doing this thing with me that I had to do, but yeah. they didn't. They did not have to do it. They didn't have to show up. They chose to come and do that. And so I did it, and you know, with, with convulsions and sobbing into the earth. But then I, eventually they, they like pulled me up and pulled me back, like, Liz, like, stop. Now everybody else does that. Now we do this with you. Now we do this for you. And so I stood there. I had Phil and Jesse holding me up on either side while Alice is running around. Like she got to throw in many, many handfuls of dirt. She was really into it. <laughs> but then I watched as everybody else came and did this. And I thought, I thought then, I think now, like, gosh, this, this is what it is. This is, this is, um, this is so much of why we come together is to make that choice of letting our hearts break with one another. And, and it changed me then. And it changed, I think, how I carry it, how, how I live it, because I had this, um, this concrete, this visceral experience of other people's courage in stepping into that. Mm -hmm. You're, I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna say invitation. You're like demand that we sign up to be broken with each other. Mm. I think is everything I have wanted, and mm. certainly it's what I love that the church like sets aside a chunk of time to force us to do that, regardless of how much we would be. I don't know. It would just be preferable to be on the on the sunshine side mm -hmm. again. And you and I both love Lent, that like 40-day horrible march toward Jesus' death when like, you know, when so mortality good. and death is like rubbed in our faces. Uh -huh. And I uh I remember going through chemo and entering the season of Lent. I had met some very cheerful I'm very, I'd, I'd gone to this service where uh, Lent had been introduced by the priest as um, being like, where we all just do our best. And then we just like, like, like Snow White's dwarfs, just, just cheerily head down on, on into the mines. And meanwhile, I was like <laughs> mascara streaked, just like <laughs> puffy, <laughs> puffy, you know, b bleeding under my shirt. Yeah. Just be like, no, 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 this is, this is the Super time yeah. for our team. Like this is the time for the yeah. losing team mm. where we have to all march through the valley of the shadow of death. And yeah. like, there's something really beautiful about knowing that everyone has to be there I mean, it's nice when they choose, but yeah. it's going to be there. Yeah, I remember um, the first Lent I had, 
after Fritz died, I felt so relieved <laughs> that like, ah, Ash Wednesday, like we're all thinking about death now. Fantastic. <laughs> like it felt like I had um, like the world. Had, I, I don't know if I had caught up with the uh, the church world or vice versa, but we could sort of be real. And I, I love that day. I love Ash Wednesday. I love the season generally because it feels like such um, sort of communal permission to get really honest in a way that I don't know that it eludes us, but we're really good at sidestepping it so much of the time, <laughs> except when, you know, you have stage four cancer and your baby dies and whatever. And then like, you're really there, but not like not so many people are ready to jump in with you because it's terrifying. And like, oh, Liz, I love probably, Just... I don't know what studies you've read. I know you've read lots of studies on all, you know, but like, <laughs> did you know that these things are contagious? Like stage four cancer and dead babies, both <laughs> contagious like if you get too close like you might catch it that's right what if i sneeze on you like watch out protect your children (laughs) oh my gosh yeah because like the rest of the time it can feel like exile you're just banished with your tragedy yeah like who who comes to find us then people do like they they trek out and they you know (laughs) totally yes until it's you know imposed on us by just you know a little over a month every year where it's like it's the month it's a month of terrible truth and i'm just (laughs) so grateful One question I get a lot is like, how did you maintain your faith in the midst of, uh-huh. you know, a life that doesn't have any guarantees? Yeah, I, I never found I, I never found that it was um, like going to break my faith, like as in my uh, love or awareness of God's presence in the world. At least for me, it just felt like it was going to break my understanding of what certainty mm. felt like or what like a life script felt like. Or what, I don't know, I guess what, promi- what promises, felt, I don't know, what promises felt like. Yeah. How would you, how do you, I'm sure you get that question all mm-hmm. the time. I, I think that, um, you know, honestly, I don't remember that much of what my faith was like in the year between when my mom died and when Fritz died. It is such a blur of still not sleeping through the night with Alice, <laughs> just like, wow. But what I remember after Fritz died was not so much doubt in God or God's goodness or those things that I think often are what people suspect, you know, how could your baby die and you still believe in God? But more, it felt like I didn't really know how to practice this faith anymore. I didn't know how to live it out. And it was clear to me pretty quickly that so much was going to have to change in how how I engaged my faith, how I exercised it, what it would mean to pray. I I did not. I was so grateful when I when I did go back to work after he died. I was so grateful that um, 
my tradition is one where the words are are written out for the, I mean, other than the preaching, yeah. um, it's like, I don't have any, I don't know what to pray. I don't know. I don't have any words. And so for a long time, I sort of stumbled in and then settled into a season of, um, of mostly praying without words of mostly listening and trying to open to whatever it might be that was beyond me. And and in particular, it was a time of relying on other people to pray and, you know, like, okay, we all do this together. And sometimes some of us can't do this in the way that, that we want, or we just don't know how. So like, okay, you all like, tag, <laughs> like you're in, you need to hold this for me for a while. Um, and so, and I, and I think the further along i mean so we're we're eight years in now he'd be eight it changes in a lot of ways and and it doesn't both but one of the things that i i think i know more now the further along i get in being parent to a dead child is um is how much i have had and still have to ask for people to to hold it all with me to to have my back to give me a hand um I think that's a big I don't think I knew that and um (laughs) I don't think I I I don't think I I owned that and practiced that really before you mean that horrible horrible interdependence Uh, yeah no I mean I vastly prefer the (laughs) rabid individualism I I had previously enjoyed like I I got this I'm invincible we got it on lockdown yeah, yeah like, my new plan is to not need anybody. Oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> I will always need people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eventually, you decided to try for another baby, mm-hmm. and the fear—the fear in the way that you um, describe it—you know, there's one thing where people take risks because they don't know what it's like to fall all the way down, and it sounds like you had to come up with some kind of different relationship with fear where it, it, it that you were never going to get to the point where the fear just went away. I think the kicker for me was realizing that whenever, if, if we ever did this, whenever we did this, I would be completely terrified that that, yeah. <laughs> that was never, yeah. never, ever not going to be the case. And so they might as well be closer in age. Yes, uh, great. This will this will hurt anyway. This yeah. will be terrifying anyway. Yeah. yeah. We had uh Jason Green on the podcast um who wrote this beautiful book called um Once More There Were Stars. Mm. And uh I I asked him about his decision to have another baby after he'd lost the first so tragically and I said um you know was that a hard choice? And he said it so sweetly, but he just said, oh, okay, like it wasn't a hard choice. Mm. It felt soft. Mm. Like he was finding these soft ways to move forward because he couldn't go back. Yeah, I love that. Ugh. I love that you live in such a way that you do not lie, mm. that this will be um, painful and terrible and beautiful and hard and wonderful and hopeful. And that none of it can be done alone. And that is a a gorgeous reminder for all of us who um, 
who know now that we need to be carried. And thanks so much for leading like that. Mm-hmm. And thanks so much for, um, for leading by example. Well, thanks for doing it with me. Liz described the way her community supported her then and still, I'm reminded of the ways people showed up for me. One person in particular comes to mind. His name is Roger. Roger was the librarian at Duke Divinity School for a zillion years, and so I only knew him as a wonderful colleague. But the moment I got sick, I realized that Roger is one of those people who is all action. In the church, we pray to be the hands and feet of Christ, but we should be more specific. We should be praying to be a Roger. Roger would show up at my house at 4 a.m. to take me to the airport, and he expected absolutely nothing. Not a thank you, not even a cheery story from me. Don't worry about talking if you're tired, he would say. Just lay the seat back. You've got a long day. Blessed are the Rogers. For this Lent, they teach us the unconquerable beauty of sitting in the ashes. So, here's a little blessing for the Rogers. Blessed are you who let your heart break. You don't have to. You could just have easily skirted the issue, shrugging it off as somebody else's job. But you didn't. You gave the ride, or set up the meal train, or sat in the waiting room. Blessed are you who show up during someone's worst day because it is your job. The healthcare worker, funeral director, foster parent, chaplain, social worker, pastor, police officer, judge, or teacher. You who have not allowed yourself to be hardened by all you've seen. You who offer the gift of steady presence in the midst of swirling chaos. Blessed are the communities of care that surround us when we're falling apart, knowing we can't do this alone, and trusting that even if we don't have the answers or the right words to say or know exactly what to do, we will continue to show up again and again and again. Because that's what love demands, to let our hearts break together. Oh, and before I go... Lent begins this week. It's that season in the church calendar that both Liz and I love so much because, for a minute there, the whole church is on the losing team. We are all practicing our finitude and grief together. So if you'd like something to orient your time over the next 40 days of Lent, it's that stretch leading up to Easter, consider joining us as we read Good Enough together. Learn more and download a free discussion guide at katebowler.com slash Lent. Here's the part where I get to thank everyone who makes this work at the Everything Happens initiative possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke University, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. Thank you for your generous support. And my team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Jesse Broom, Keith Weston, J.J. Dickinson, Karen and Jerry Bowler, Jeb and Sammy. Your gifts make this work shine. I'm Kate Bowler, and this is 
everything happens. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and if you don't mind, please leave a review when you're there. We really love to hear from you. We always read those reviews and really love listening to your stories. You are really special to us. Find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com.